Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Everyone who cares about business and investing either wants to be a unicorn or discover one. But what does it take to be a unicorn or to have the ability to find one in a business environment replete with so many other creatures? Gigi Levy-Wise, general partner at NFX, knows what it's like to be a unicorn, to identify unicorns, and to support their development. As a child, Gigi's attraction to tech was first activated through a love of video games. Then his adult career began as a pilot. After serving in the Air Force, he founded several startups, worked as the division president of Amdocs, and then was CEO of 888 Holding, an online gaming company. Following his business success, he turned his attention to acting as an angel investor. Eventually, he became a partner at the venture capital firm NFX to offer more hands-on guidance to founders. On this episode of Future of Tech, Gigi offers his thoughts on promising industries for future investment, including fintech, synthetic biology, gaming, crypto, and marketplaces. Gigi contends that AI is now cutting across many industries rather than simply being a part of standalone businesses. He also shares the wisdom he's learned along his entrepreneurial journey that can be helpful to current and future founders. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs' R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. Welcome to a new episode of uh, Future of Tech. And today I'm very happy and honored to have Gigi Levy-Wise, a general partner at NFX, and we'll speak about fundraising, about being a founder, CEO, and also leading one of the most successful VCs in Israel. So welcome, Gigi. Thanks, thanks for having me. Usually we start with, uh, you know, kind of uh, walking through your history. Your history is very interesting. You, you, you were a pilot and then a CEO and- You mean you're telling me that I'm old, that it's very long? <laughs> no, actually it's, it's very interesting. Can you share a bit about your history and how exactly did you find yourself touching technology? Yeah, of course. So um, as a kid, I was always a gamer. I always loved gaming. And so as a kid, I started learning how to code. And uh, I think that one of the first things I ever did was coding, trying to code games. Commodore 64 at the time, you know, this, there was the Sinclair Spectrum in the Commodore 64 camp. I was a Commodore guy. And that was one of the first things I did. And so 
at the time there was no this kind of eight to hundred thing where you go and become you want to be a tech in the military. And so I ended up going and becoming a pilot. And tech state is something in my background all my life. I, like I always knew that uh, whatever I'm going to do one day is going to be somewhat related to tech. And then as I, uh, when I got out of the Air Force, uh, the first thing I did, like everybody here in Israel, is to think that I'm smart enough to create my own startup, which I wasn't at the time, very much not. So I started playing around with creating companies. And um, I had a bunch of attempts in the first company that I created, and that didn't really go well. And then the second one did a bit better, and the third one did better. And so kind of got into it. And I think that uh, over the years, I, uh, I never studied. I, never, I, I don't have a degree in computer science. I actually, I, I don't have a degree almost in anything. I, I started a master's in the Tel Aviv University. They have this program directly to a master's. But then one of my companies started working well and I dropped out of this program. And then I, uh, I only did an MBA. So I, th- I guess I'm an academic failure from that regard. But I did touch many things. And I think one of the great things about what I did in the university was that I touched a little bit of uh, law, a little bit of economics, a little bit of uh, philosophy, a little bit of this and that. And I think that basically... Being, you know, multidisciplinary, it's probably more important than being an expert in one thing, generally, generally speaking. And so after getting out of the military, the, you know, what happened is that I, I started getting more and more into tech. Then, you know, Israel is, uh, if there are listeners that are not aware of Israel, then Israel, you know, Israel is a tiny country, which means that all the companies that are focusing on the inside of Israel, the banks, the seller networks, they're tiny companies compared to their equivalents in the United States or their equivalents in Europe because, you know, the biggest seller operator has 3 million subs. It's like a tiny, it's a non-existent operator in many countries. And so when you think about your career, then focusing on export, focusing on, on targeting other markets is, is critical if, you're, if you think big. And so that was always what attracted me. And with time, it became very clear that everything I'm going to do is going to be around tech. So. I guess I was very fortunate in, in that simply because there's, you know, you look at careers in Israel and uh, the careers of those that are focusing on the export on the outside are generally a lot more exciting than those that are focusing on the local market in Israel. And so I think I was very fortunate in, in making that decision and very fortunate in working with some other amazing people around tech and, uh, and building a career in this, which, you know, if anybody's listening and, and need to decide on that, choose to go with tech, choose to go and work in the Israeli high tech. It is the, it is dramatically better than all the other alternatives. And what, uh, during the, these times, turned you to become an investor as opposed to leading a company and being an active part of its uh, management team? It's a good question. And uh, I think that uh, the realistic, realistic answer is that I'm an oppressed entrepreneur, meaning that this is my way of getting and staying close to the entrepreneurial ecosystem without having to live in the trenches again of being a startup CEO or, or founder, which I, I don't know if people are recognize what kind of a commitment that is. I mean, I'm sure the founders do, but it's really, it's, uh, it's, there's no day, there's no night. There's, you know, it's always there. It's like there, you're never not thinking about your company. You're never not thinking about the problems, the issues, the challenges. And so after doing this a few times and running companies, I think that I wanted to stay close to this ecosystem. I wasn't sure that I have the energy to do another company as a CEO. And so that was my way to get there. It was also, in a way, the only downside of being a company founder is that you're really 200% focused on one thing. Now, that one thing could be a unicorn, could be a great company, but in the wide scope of the world, it's just one tiny dot. 
right? And you can be the best company in sales automation for people that are trying to sell to B2B company, blah, blah, blah. And this could be a billion dollar company, but it's still, it's, you know, it's, it's not even 0.01% of what's happening in the world. And so for me, uh, being curious and wanting to touch many fields and wanting to be involved in many fields, the investing allowed me to be connected to tons of companies, to many companies on various fields, on, you know, in various fields, in various stages, and basically try to help and try to assist where I can uh, without then needing to be dedicated to one thing. And so for me, this is, you know, it's like the best of all worlds because uh, I think one of my favorite quotes is once I heard my, one of my kids attending a friend, a friend asked him, uh, what does your father do? And he said something, well, he invests in startups. And the friend said, well, what does he mean? What does it mean that he invests in startups? And my kid that was then like eight years old said something like, he thought about it and said, he's looking for the smartest people he can find. And when he finds them, he asks them what they want to build. And if he likes them and he likes what they want to build, he gives them money and helps them to build it and make their dream come true. And I'm like, whoa, that's the best definition I ever heard of my job, right? That's, that's why I'm so happy. That's why I'm so thankful because that's exactly what I feel. I work with the smartest people I can find. They tell me what's their dream of building. And if I like them and I like uh, what they want to build, then I try to help them with capital and with uh, assistance and try to make their dream come true. So that, that's why I enjoy it. That's why I'm doing it. Well, it's a great answer. And, and, and definitely uh, for an eight years uh, old <laughs> kid uh, to say such a thing, it's uh, like an amazing, amazing deep thinking. Now, I'm wondering, we will speak about unicorns. This season is about unicorns and about how... We find or you found such unicorns in the past, but just before that, when you started to look into investments, you, need the, you needed to raise money. Can you tell me what's unique about your fund? So everybody says they're unique. I'll try to explain why we think we're unique. You know, I, I was an angel investor for, I started around 15 years ago. Some periods I did more, some periods I did less. And then in 2016, I decided that it's uh, not boring. Boring is not the right word, but it, I'm, it's not progressing enough. Uh, and as an angel, you just end up being yourself. You're a walking checkbook. If you stop signing checks, then you're not relevant anymore. And so I, I wanted to take everything that I learned and, uh, and turn this into something that will impact the ecosystem even more. I personally also have this interest in making the Israeli ecosystem better. I think that in a way, I know it sounds a bit cliche, but for me, You know, Israeli high-tech is the new Zionism. You know, we, we don't have lots of natural resources. We, you know, we've never been able to become a 50 million tourist a year country. We're not a central trade route. And so what we have is our brains and our ability to create things. And, you know, when you look at the impact of Israeli high-tech on the world, it's like unbelievable. We have more unicorns, startups, patents, PhD, you know, everything per capita than anywhere in the world. And in some places, It's not just per capita, it's also in absolute terms. And so for me, uh, when I think, when I look at the success of this startup called the State of Israel, and I look at what's required to take it to the next level, then definitely uh, more focus on Israeli high tech is critical. It is not that we need to undermine other things, of course, but, but this is really the thing that is going to save our economy uh, or going to continue driving our economy forward. And so for me, on top of doing this, because I love it and because it's good financially, I also think that this is a little bit of giving back. And I think that also as somebody that really, you know, I look at my career and uh, tech brought me you know, to amazing places. 
and to great success that, I, that I'm very thankful for. And I want to be able to give back and help other entrepreneurs as much as I got help or more from others in the past. And so all of that I did as an angel. And then at a certain point, it became apparent that, it's, that I can do more if I try to put it in a more institutionalized manner. And so we created NFX. NFX is a fund in Silicon Valley in Israel. I started it with two partners. One of them is James Courier. He's the original growth hacker in Silicon Valley. Everybody knows him. Is, you know, he founded like seven companies and, and sold uh, or IPO'd all of them. Great, great guy. One of the smartest people I knew before. And another guy called Pete Flint, who was the founder of Trulia. And before that was the founding team of uh, lastminute.com. So two unicorns. Uh, at the period where unicorns were more rare, right, right now, it's uh, like the, the legend that unicorns are rare is no longer true. And we've created the fund together with the aim to basically, we call it to change the way uh, disruptors are uh, like, you know, the top disruptors are financed or funded, meaning that we really want to, to take everything that worked for us and try to give it to the top founders in order to make them as successful as possible. And capital is only one part of it. And so, you know, we are working really hard on training for them. Think about it like boot camps or or thing that can help them, but not in coding or, or not just in tech. It's on pricing. It's on how to build a marketplace. It's on solving the chicken and egg problem. It's on a bunch of things. And that's like one thing that all this help. The second thing is that we have a whole team that's working on helping them, helping them with PR, helping them with marketing, helping them with pricing, or tons of other things. And the third thing is that we have this network of support between them, which we call the Guild, which means that they also help each other. So there's a tech system in place that's helping them basically connect with each other and help each other because you know it's difficult to be a founder. And so all these things are aimed for people that are getting an investment from us to be in the best position to succeed, notwithstanding the money, because our money is just as good as other people's money. But the work with us, the work with the team, the, the software that we put in place for them that helps them fundraise, that help them uh, get support from each other, all of these are aimed to make their lives easier. And, and you know we know we've been there, so we know how tough it is to build a company. We know how tough it is to scale a company. We know that it's really one of the toughest tasks in the world. It's actually, it's almost an impossible task, right? You know, what are the chances that a small startup is going to beat a large company? And all of these startups are beating large companies. And so we're trying to even the odds as much as we can uh, through funding, but then through everything else that we're doing. This is uh, very interesting. And let me try to pick your brain a bit more about the ecosystem. You mentioned technology being the focus area of yours and, and your partners. Can you give me like an observation about, you know, everybody speaks about cyber, clearly one of the top issues that uh, many are investing in. But other than cyber, what are the areas that you see as the ones that startups are focusing on? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, just to say something about the world, I think that we're seeing now this era where for large countries, many of the startups don't need to be global to be mega successful, right? So if you're the Amazon of India, you're going to be a pretty large company, right? Or if you're the, you know, if you're the real estate marketplace of Indonesia, you're going to be a pretty large company, right? Because these are huge countries. So we divide the startups in our world into startups that want to be local leaders versus ones that want to be global leaders. So if Facebook wants to be a global leader, right? They want to be the net social network of everybody. Or, uh, or at Google, they want to be a global leader. Truly, uh, you know, the real estate marketplaces that in the United States, they've never gone elsewhere. Right there, because their market is huge enough in the United States. Real estate is so big that it's you know it's enough to tackle in the United States. And then we've got similar companies in many other markets that are also doing really really well. So there is a strategy of going after local leaders. So you know, there Sequoia set up a fund in India, and others set up a fund in India because they think that India on its own 
can create large enough companies that are targeting the local market that are going to be worth tens of billions, which is great. We personally don't do that. We're always looking for the companies that want to be global leaders. And in these companies, we're, you know, we are mostly probably 40% Israel and 60% Silicon Valley. That's more or less, we now have five partners and uh, two of them are Israeli. So it's like 40%, and, although there's no allocation. And in terms of the fields, then, you know, we're basically doing everything. We're called NFX, so it's going after network effects. But the field that we're seeing that are the most interesting right now, so, you know, the first thing is generally uh, fintech. We think that, uh, you know, financial services, which is probably the largest market in the world or one of the largest market in the world, if you look at banks and insurance companies and so on, this is one of the last places that still needs to be completely disrupted. And the reason is because unlike other areas, regulators are really, really, really protecting it uh, for good reasons. For example, when, you know, when truly I came and ate all the newspapers on apartment listings, on real estate listings, there was no regulator to protect it. In other words, there was no regulator that said, oh, you can't stop advertising on uh, television or on newspapers. When you want to create a new bank, the local regulators in every country are pretty nasty about it sometimes way beyond what they should be. And so the first thing is fintech. And, I, and we think that fintech is not only becoming something that's finally reached the tipping point where the new companies can eat the old companies, but also fintech because of technology is no longer a standalone service. And we're going to start seeing fintech more and more embedded into other services. Meaning that if I want to give it like a, you know, a simple example. So if you're a Fiverr freelancer and that's, all your, uh, that's most of your income, why can't Fiverr offer you loans if you need a loan, right? They know exactly how much you're going to make. They can predict better than anybody else. Why can't they give you a credit card? Why can't they basically give you a, a saving account, right? At the end of the day, that's where you make all your money. They have the most information about you more than anybody else. And so we're going to see fintech embedded more and more and more into other services. So this point of regulators finally yielding with technology, finally getting to the right place with fintech being embedded into other products. That's one thing that we're seeing, and that's one area. Another area that we're really focused on is prop tech, which is everything that has to do around real estate. You know, if you look as a commodity, real estate is the largest one in the world. It's a place where the transactions are incredibly high in value. And so there's a lot of margin to be had. And we're constantly investing in, in companies in the prop tech space, because we believe that, again, there's still a lot of room for innovation around that in a, you know, in a multi-trillion dollar market a year. The next area is, um, if I jump to a completely different thing, is synthetic biology or computational biology, which is the connection, the, the field that intersects biology with data and machine learning. And so basically the ability to now start looking at uh, biological data as data, as digital data, and analyze it and, and basically use the insights that you're getting to create either new drugs or new delivery mechanisms for drugs or a bunch of other things. And we've invested quite a bit in this. We actually have a partner right now in the fund that's doing mostly that, who is one of the top entrepreneurs in the field. And, and, you know, and we've done some amazing investment that I'm super proud of because, again, this is a new platform. This is a new thing that's, being, that's emerging. Another area that we think is here to stay and is, is going to create super significant companies is crypto. And again, crypto has uh, something that are bullshit, but it has a lot of inherent changes that it's bringing to the world that we believe in. And so we're pretty active in that. And one of our partners, Morgan, she was the founder of Libra, now called Novi, the Facebook digital currency, and one of the most active investors and connected people in the field. And she's amazing. She joined us to lead that area. And then if we want to jump to a completely different area, there's games. 
where you know we think that the world has crossed this theoretical line where everybody's now a gamer. Like my, you know, my mother played games. Everybody plays games. It's like the founder and CEO of Netflix said that that he does not fear HBO. He fears Fortnite, right? And so, because the big question is, especially when you start thinking about the metaverse and where it's all going, the question is not whether you're going to watch that movie or that movie. The question is where do you want to live your virtual life? And so, you know, we're we're focusing on all these areas and a bit more. We still have a big focus on marketplaces. We think that marketplaces in general versus central services versus somebody producing a product and selling it, the ability of sellers and buyers to meet each other, be it in a services industry like Uber and Lyft, or be it in a product environment like eBay or Amazon Marketplace. We think that these are, it's just the tip of the iceberg, and we're going to see a lot more happening around that. So this is just a few of the areas that we're focusing on. There's, there's tons of others that we can dive on if you want into. Yeah, you know, we are opening so many loose ends that I, I, I hope <laughs> we'll be able to close some of them. But it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating. I would like to pick your brain before we go a bit deeper into the unicorns. You've mentioned AI in all those, uh, you know, directions. Do you see AI as a standalone Would you invest in an AI company or you're seeing it today as a vehicle to make the new molecules? Yeah, AI is now no longer a buzzword that you use in some pitches. It's a buzzword that you use in all of them. And so <laughs> the way we look at it, AI is almost, uh, if you wish, the way that we used to say in the past, we're going to build it in the cloud. Or you said in the past, we're going to use Java. In other words, AI is a capability, or machine learning is a capability that is now available uh, and is very relevant for many, many, many things. I don't think I have many companies in my portfolio that don't use it to some extent. Now, clearly, in some companies, it is super, super sophisticated. I've got one company that is analyzing you know, video streams of surgeries to basically analyze them in retrospect, but also soon uh, be able to give indications in real time. What's happening in the surgery? Like can give uh, alerts when things are going wrong. Without AI, without machine vision in this particular case, it's like the company doesn't exist. There's really nothing there. And then you go to other companies and you use the AI to do chat moderation as part of the service for a product that is, which is completely different, right? So you're using AI. And so I think that just like right now, you'd never see a company that is not in the cloud or you'd Don't, you, know, you hardly see a company right now that's not using a new one that's not using Kubernetes for their, you know, for their infrastructure. I don't think they will see many companies that don't use AI at some front. I think that pure AI companies, meaning companies where their core product is AI, if you wish, infrastructure companies, the AI infrastructure companies, uh, it is possible that the train has left the station and that many of the, of the big ones have already been created. We are, however, we did invest uh, a few months ago in a company called Super.ai which is doing this phenomenal process automation for companies for everything which is more sophisticated and tougher than what RPA uh, can do. So RPA basically takes manual processes that are repetitive and basically automates them. What they're saying is that there are some of these processes that should be automated where it's complicated because you need the human eye to watch it or you need something else. So they're trying to create that new level of RPA. That's the closest to an AI infrastructure company that we've invested in the last few years. Interesting. Let's speak about unicorns. Is there a way for you 
seeing many and you know actually being part of of uh, of some that you can identify some at least basic fundamentals that needs to happen because you know none of us know who is going to become a unicorn after all but basic fundamentals that you can share that say you know this gives those guys or those this company better chances to become a unicorn yeah so we're basically talking about the patterns that that we see in unicorns and, and they're very very different i think that if i try to go for the common denominator the first thing that i can say is that i'll take a step backwards and i'll say that i'll say two things the first thing is that there are different patterns that work in other words i mean the, the most famous story is the difference between the Mark Zuckerberg approach to building a product which is move fast and break things versus the Instagram founder's approach to product, which is let's make it perfect before we release it. And basically both of them succeeded, right? I mean, Facebook succeeded more, but you know, who knows where Instagram would have been without being acquired. But both of them created meaningful companies with totally different approaches and both of them for consumer product. And some say that maybe Instagram had to be pixel perfect because it was all around imagery and Facebook could be less, but who knows? And so the first thing is that it's not one size fits all. And so if you're if you don't follow, if I'm going to say something here and uh, you as a founder don't fall into one of those things, doesn't mean that you can't succeed. The second thing is that I think there's very different patterns for very different fields. I mean, if I push it to the extreme, if you take the move fast and break things uh, approach, that's going to take you very very short distance in uh, in a medical devices company, right? In medical devices, what you're trying to sell more than anything is credibility and functionality that never fails. So, you know, it's fine if the Facebook page doesn't load and you move fast, but it's not fine if the oxygen doesn't arrive, God forbid. And so, and so I think that different patterns work and different fields require different patterns. After saying all of that, I can tell you that there's something that we see in that are patterns that are common to many. The first thing is that the founders tend to be very, very fast. Now, I know this sounds like a cliche. Everybody's fast. What do you mean being fast? But until you work with many, many companies, it's almost impossible to explain the difference in speed between different founders. You have the same discussion. You get to the same conclusion. And one team would implement it in a day. And another one would implement it in a month. And this is not about necessarily the slower team being less decisive. It's just the pace. And many times people ask, why are investors not excited about investing in founders that come from large companies? And one of the reasons is that founders that come from large companies tend to have, especially non, um, maybe from Facebook, it's different, but people that come from Oracle or from you know, very large companies, they, many times they bring very specific domain expertise, which is great. But also at the same time, they bring inherent slowness because nobody expects you to bring a new product to the market in three months in Oracle. It's irrelevant. It's like it's not the business model now. When you have 100,000 people, you definitely don't want each one of them to come up with a new product every three months, right? That's going to be chaos. So, you know, so you're giving away on part of the speed and part of the innovation for the sake of order, which when you're huge, I guess there's no choice. Uh, although we're seeing a change in this as well today, we can talk about that. But when you're a startup, you've got to do that. And so speed is, is the first thing. And, and many times people ask me how I look at companies. And one of the things that I look at the swiftness in which the dialogue is happening, you know, how fast they're replying, how fast they're sending me things that they said that they're going to send. And people ask me how, oh, whether this is not too, uh, too ridiculous of a way to look at it. Like, you know, who cares if they took two days to answer the email rather than an hour? 
right? Assuming that there's no good reason, right? Nobody was on, you know, in the military reserve service or something like there's no good excuse. And the answer is that if it took them two, three days, then it's going to take them two, three days also to come back to a candidate. And that candidate may go elsewhere at the same time. It's going to take them two, three days to come back to a customer who may end up going with a competitor. It's going to take them two, three days to get back to an investor in the next round who will think that they're slow and therefore not invest. And so I do genuinely look at speed as a, something that is a great predictor. And all the founders that I know that built unicorns are very, very fat. That's one thing. The second thing is that they're not afraid to make mistakes. I think that all the founders that I invested in that became unicorns or that I know they became unicorns took some wrong turns along the way. But being able to take the risk, go forward, try, understand it's not working, iterate, go back, go to another direction and not take it as if the world collapsed is such a critical capability that I basically think that all unicorn founders have that. It's a combination of lack of fear of failure or fear of failure that doesn't paralyze you with an understanding that if you want to move fast, there's got to be iterations. And if you're going to make fast iteration, there's going to be failures along the way. I think the next thing is that most of the top founders that, that created unicorns um, don't lie to themselves that much. Meaning that when you see that something is not working, the worst thing that you can do as a startup founder is to basically say, oh, it's not working, but we're going to change something small. Maybe it's going to work. Because, because generally, it's never going to be the something small that's going to make something that's not working work. And so the people that have a tough time looking in the mirror and say, it's not working, I better move on. I should pivot. I should change. I should reiterate. I should do something else now are the people that are basically taking the capital that they have and utilizing it better on the way to find the product market fit. So in a way, the way I think about it is that as a founder, you get, this is like a bit of kind of stupid philosophy. As a founder, you get as many shots at goal, right? The attempts to score as you're giving yourself. If you're taking each shot and you're making it longer and it takes more time, it takes more resources and, and you're slow in understanding that it's not working, what it means generally is that you're going to get less shots at goal. Now, nobody's a genius. No, you know, sometimes it works for the first time, but for most people, it doesn't. If you're going to be in a position where you're going to allow yourself 10 shots at goal, like 10 iterations until it works, your chance of getting it right are so much higher than if you end up allowing yourself only three iterations. Yeah, it, it also, I think, goes hand in hand with your second point. Exactly. Because if you're not fast or if you're afraid of failure, what it does is that it doesn't allow you to move to the next iteration really fast. I always get a question in these stages from people that from larger companies. That, you know, I once was, uh, I was presented to the board of one of the large automotive manufacturers. And I spoke to them about this and they looked at me and one of the older guys said, I don't think you understand this young man, uh, but we're developing cars. We're not developing software. And the car takes like four years to develop a new car. And so all you think you're telling me is good for your games and software, but it's not good for us. And I didn't know what to say. What I ended up saying, I said, I'm going to answer with a joke, which immediately wasn't something that they enjoyed me saying. And I told them the joke about the two guys that are getting off the uh, getting off the bus in a safari in Africa. And the guide says, uh, be careful here, guys. This is the lion's area. So one of them says, give me a minute. He rushes back to the bus and switches from his safari shoes to sneakers. 
And so the other friend starts laughing at him and says, you think you're going to outrun the lion with this? I said, oh, no, no. But I think I'm going to outrun you if I need to. Right. And so I told the guy, you don't, it's true. You're never going to create a car in two days. Right. The, you know, everyday software. That, that's, but if somebody else, for example, Tesla, is going to take two years to create a car where it takes you four years, guess who's winning? And if Tesla is going to update their, their software every few weeks, and you don't need to get to the garage for that. It just happens. While your car gets a software update once a year, and you only get it when you go to the garage, then basically, then, you know, you're, you're a step behind. And so it's all about being fast. It's all about not being afraid of iterating. It's all about giving yourself more shots to get to your product market fit, where you can start scaling. And these are the qualities that I've seen all the successful unicorn founders that I work with. Wow, this was, uh, this was great. So thanks for that. I want to go divert you into gaming, which I find fascinating. We explored gaming um, during this podcast from several angles. We talked to PhDs in psychology that went to work for startups to look into, you know, what should be the look and feel and the experience of the uh, end users. We spoke, obviously, also to um, manufacturers of games. And, and I was wondering, what's your view when it comes to, you know, the war between Xbox, PlayStation? Is it going to be like a platform war? Or do you still see room for startups like, you know, Fortnite and others to, uh, to find their way? Yeah. yeah. So I think the game ecosystem is probably the most interesting one. And many times I would send founders from other fields to one of my game companies to stay there for a day and understand that whatever they're experiencing is nothing compared to the intensity of a game founder. And that, you know, if you take a normal company, a normal company would have probably like a normal B2C company would probably have at any given point, like 10 tests, tested when you, when you test something and, and you lay out and you button and you conversion funnel. And a game company would have uh, around 100 tests at the same time. And so it's really it's the most extreme of extremes. It's the most, because, and the reason is because you have the most data. So think about it. If you're, um, if you're an Amazon, which is a company that lives off data, then every time I visit Amazon, basically Amazon has, you know, I look at four or five products, let's say, the four or five pages, I scroll a little bit. So let's say that Amazon gets, uh, I don't know, you know, 100 data points, okay, which is, you know, what do they look at? What do they click on? At the same time, in a game session, the game company could get 10,000 data points, right? What happened when the, when the enemy came from here? What happened when the enemy came from there? Did I defend? Did I not defend? Am I an offensive player, the defensive player? What happened when I lost? What happened when I won? Um, did I immediately attack again? Did I not? Um, am I the kind of player that every time I lose, I end up playing less? Am I the kind of player that every time I lose, I end up playing more? gazillion data point because the, basically the game is all data that's what's happening there and so the flood of data is what allows game companies to be so much more iterative and so much more data driven than any other company so that's that when you look at the industry there basically are a few players in this industry that are battling for for the future of the industry and it used to be so much simpler because in the past games were packaged goods meaning that uh, there was a team that worked on a game and they finished working on a game and they put it in a box and they shrink wrapped it and they sent it to the store. And the team used, went away to work on the next project because you couldn't change anything. It was on a disc or, or whatever. And uh, you open it and you either liked it or not. And that was the game. And now it's so much more complex because the games are live creatures. They continuously, you know, you continuously add more content. 
you do something called live ops, which is basically adding events and things that are happening in the game on top of just more content. Games are becoming platforms today. So games are adding more and more and more meta games on top of them. So, you know, you can have a game, but then you have a collection card on top of it and a virtual pet on top of it and trivia on top of it. They're entertainment franchises. And so when we think about the, the future, the question that we have is who's going to control what we call the metaverse, right? And the metaverse basically is the assumption that our virtual lives are not going to be jumps into virtual world as we have today. So today I live my life and then I jump into Facebook for social or I jump into Instagram for social or TikTok and I jump into Instagram using my iPhone. And then I jump into Fortnite using my PlayStation. And then I jump into Netflix using my television. And the assumption is that, and so we have for each one of those, we basically have a few constituencies. So in my, uh, on my phone, there is the phone manufacturer. Then you have the developer of the game, the people that actually build the game and operate it. Then you have what's called the publisher, which is not always the same company, which is the, whoever markets the game, whoever markets it to, to the customer. And so all of these creatures, each one of them wants to control the future, right? When we look at it today, we're seeing essentially uh, the following thing. We're seeing that platforms are meaningful but they're limited in their impact. Even when you think about iPhone as a platform, it's very meaningful, right? It's the world's largest company or whatever, but in terms of its ability to impact what game I'm playing, to impact how I play the game, or to take ownership of my experience in the game, it's close to zero. Same thing for PlayStation, same thing for Xbox. They are computing devices. That's what they are. They are also payment gateways, which is why they take share of the revenue. But as we saw in the last Epic to Apple, judge ruling, that's going to be less and less so. They, you know, they, they will be less and less able to leverage their, their position as device manufacturers to take part of the game revenues. So do you tie here the phenomena you've mentioned earlier about fintech entering different fields? Also here, you'll see the game platform starting to offer maybe banking services? I'm not sure about banking services. I'm quite sure, though, that you know, even today, uh, Sony and PlayStation do take stakes in game studios or lend them money sometimes to build projects or pay them up front so that they can develop a game that's going to be exclusive, at least for a period of time, to the platform. So I think this will happen a little bit. There are some crazy things that are happening out there. There's a game called Axie Infinity, which is a blockchain game. We can talk just for two hours just on that, where basically to buy your first character, you need a lot of money. So you need a few hundred bucks. And many of the players come from uh, uh, poorer countries like Vietnam. And so there's a company called YGG, Yield Gaming Guild, which is basically lending these people money to get into the game in return for part of the upside. So that's like fintech in the game. But generally, when I think about the future, I think the most interesting question is who are going to be the companies that are going to control our metaverse, our presence in the virtual world? And when we look at that, everybody's trying to be a contender. So the big game developers, you know, Epic and others, uh, they really want to be that. They think that they already have the right because they already have our identity a little bit. They have our characters. They have games that we like playing. Uh, so Activision think about it. Epic think about that from the game developer side. Then we have the platform. So Apple and Google and Sony and Xbox are not going to roll over and say, okay, sure, we're, we're out of the game. And of course, on the devices side, the one that everybody's forgetting is Facebook with Oculus which is the leading VR platform that's going to be very material in the world of the, of the metaverse. You've got the OS players you know, like Google and with Android. 
but with like Facebook and Oculus and others that are saying, okay, fine, whatever, you know, it could be whatever hardware you want, but I control the OS. And then you've got companies like Facebook that openly say we want to control the metaverse and there's other companies that are trying to go there. So when I think about the future, I think that the most interesting question is who's going to eventually control our presence in the metaverse? Because whoever controls that, that's going to probably be the largest prize of them all. And then the games are going to be living inside that. It's still probably, I don't know, 15, 20 years away for the full vision of this to materialize. But this is probably the biggest prize that's, that's lying in the startup land. And startups, while I don't think that startups can today aim to be the owners of the metaverse, that requires too much money. I think we were talking about, and just in Facebook, there's like five or 6,000 people working on the hardware for that, on the Oculus. So I'm not sure that a startup can do that, but I do think we're going to see a huge battle between the companies that understand that this is where a lot of the future of digital is going to lie. Definitely interesting times. Before, you know, we run away completely out of time, a few uh, words about, uh, let's call it personal words. You've mentioned your history. Do you find balance between, you know, your uh, professional life and your personal life? Is, is it something that you find more difficult as time goes by or easier? It's probably interesting to ask my wife this question rather than just me. I think that I work today more than I ever did. That is a technical, true statement. And so uh, I'm not sure that I'm finding all the balance that I would have wanted. I think I'm still managing to spend time on things that are important for me. I think that probably, I don't know, 10, 15, whatever percent of my time goes for some non-for-profit activities that I'm involved in, mostly around education non-for-profits like Meet, uh, Middle Eastern Entrepreneurs of Tomorrow that takes Palestinian and Jewish kids and give them a three-year program for uh, learning computer science and entrepreneurship and getting to know each other and, and something we, we call deeper understanding, which is learning the narrative of the other side. Projects like uh, Desert Star that's looking at the, uh, the Bedouin community and trying to change education there. Projects like Kamatech that's uh, getting uh, ultra-Orthodox boys and girls into Israeli high-tech and helping them all the way up to setting up their own companies. So I think around 10, 15% of my time is dedicated to this, which is, uh, again, trying to give back and trying to change some of the harsh truth of our region. That's one thing I, I, you know, I probably feel better about my work-life balance now because my kids are larger, uh, older now. So they, uh, uh, I don't think that they, that they can provide me as much time as I want with them as I would, would have wanted because they're now busy. I'm, uh, I'm the driver and the ATM machine, but I'm not sure that I'm the the same fun I used to be. And so I, I do find balance. I think that it is important to understand that in our industry, there is a tendency for lack of balance. There's a tendency for lack of balance. There's a tendency for not, and I think COVID made it much worse, for really not having any, any boundaries between life and work. Like, uh, you know, I, uh, I can find myself, you know, in 1 a.m., emails at home, after going out with friends and, you know, it's just that there's, it's really, so, it's so easy, right? It's always with us. And so I do urge people to try and find that balance. But at the same time, I, I fear that, especially when you're an entrepreneur in the critical stages of your company, finding that balance is super tough, really, really super tough because, you know, it's not as if you need to work 20 hours a day or something, but the reality is that up to a certain limit, Working more is just doing more, which allows you to speed more. You know, sometimes founders come to me and ask me what they should do. And that's one of the areas where I don't have a great, a great answer because 
on one end, I would love for them to be home and, you know, see many of them have young kids. And so, you know, these years are never going to come back. Uh, and I cannot recommend to anybody to not be with their, to not be with their kids when they're young. I think these are magical moments that that change you forever for the better. On the other hand, when they ask me, uh, do you think it's okay that I work less? I tell them it's your choice, but you know, at some point less because losing. And so it's really from that regard, it's really the toughest choice I think that that people have. Both me as an investor thinking about my founders, both founders think about it, their employees. And I do recommend that people find the right balance. But I do fear also that the right balance for when being in a startup is not the perfect balance. I, I hope I, you know, I hope it's clear. Sadly, I don't have a solution. Yeah, it's very clear, I think. As you said, it's not, uh, it's not the ideal balance, but it's very clear. You did mention when we started this dialogue that uh, you do recommend a, a young girl or a boy that is starting or thinking about his uh, next uh, career to go into the tech industry. Yes. And you also mentioned the fact that you are trying to help those who can't or, you know, some populations that are less privileged than ours to enter into this domain. Is this something that you see for the long run as a topic that needs to be cultivated as a society, touching technology, working uh, yeah. with technology? I think that if I push away for a second dystopian views of everything in the world being done by machines and the only people that remain relevant are philosophers, which is, you know, that's kind of this uh, thought about many, many years from now. The reality is that most jobs that people are doing today are either going to be disrupted by technology or going to be completely changed by technology. You know, accountants, lawyers, there's, there's some things in the world that are just not going to be the same. You know, maybe not five years, maybe not 10 years, maybe not 15 years, but there is no chance in the world that we will continue paying a lawyer to review our apartment rental contract, which is a standard contract that has, you know, whatever, 100 things in it that you need to review and where the you know, NLP algorithm can analyze this 100% already today. Right. It just doesn't make sense that we pay somebody a few thousand shekels or bucks to review that. And so all these jobs are going to change. They're going to change by technology. They're going to change dramatically. I think that the most important thing is to foster creativity in people. Because the one thing that machines are not going to change as fast, maybe one day, but not as fast, is all the creative elements of things. And I think that when you think about your career, the place that leverages these changes the most, the place that allows you to be creative, but also generate meaningful things is the technology ecosystem, the startup ecosystem. And so I think that, again, it's not that I envision that it's the best career in the world to be somebody writing code or somebody doing product. You know, everything's good for somebody else. But when I think about what industry I want my kids to be in, you know, one that generally is faster, one that is generally more future-proof, one that is generally more creative, that allow, that gives room for more creativity, one that is uh, probably going to allow them to impact the world more than I think that that is technology. And that's why I, I encourage everybody to get into it. Great. And, and my last question, Gigi, goes into your background and maybe, so I'm an entrepreneur. I've listened to this podcast. Um, I was thrilled to learn many things. What is the one lesson you'd like this new entrepreneur before he starts his journey to take to immune him 
towards the tough years that he already understood is going to go through. Yeah. Wow. So many and so little at the same time. I, I think that if I want to be helpful, uh, I think the most important thing is not to carry the burden on your own. I think that there's very little that's being said about the intense pressure that founders are under when founding a company. And what I try to tell people is make sure you're not alone. And so when you're the founder of a company, try to not be the solo founder. It's great for equity numbers, but it's, you know, but it's so much tougher and the chances of success are so much lower. When you get on your journey, find that along the way who are the people that you think can give you good advice. And these people can change over time, right? When you're at the beginning, there's, you need one sort of advice there. And, you know, and, and find people that are willing to listen and willing to, to help you. Simply because if you keep everything inside, the pressure is so intense that it's very hard to handle. And so try not to be alone is probably the one thing that I would encourage people to do. And, and that, of course, that requires listening because you know, nobody wants to give advice to somebody that's not listening. That requires being, you know, knowing how to say thank you when you get good advice. That requires not being arrogant, right? You can't, you can't go and and ask for somebody's help when you're arrogant. You know, I'm, I know everything, but you know, I don't mind that, but I'm, I know everything. So you've got to be able to show vulnerability, right? Many of the founders think that if they show vulnerability, it means that they're never going to raise capital. That's not true, right? You know, you don't go into the meeting with the investor and say, I don't know whether the product's good or bad. You know, you don't do that. But in terms of being able to say, yeah, I'm not sure 100 always, or, you know, right now it's a tough period or, you know, or tell the people that are helping you that you're not sure about something. Tell them that you don't necessarily have 100% confidence that you'd like to hear their opinion. And as long as you remember that you're not the only one passing through it, as long as you remember to surround yourself with other people, other founders, people that were founders in the past, investors that have enough experience or that are willing to help and listen, as long as you are able to create that environment where you can openly share your concerns, your challenges, get advice and get it off your heart and maybe come back with some practical things to do, then it's manageable. If you try to keep it, we're always good. We're always strong. You know, we don't, we never have a problem. That's where it's becoming, you know, too hard to, to handle for me, at least. That's, uh, so that would be my number one advice. It was a pleasure. A fascinating talk. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Avishai. Till next time. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.